Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and my guest today is Ryan McMakin, who is a senior editor at the Mises Institute and a co-host of the Radio Rothbard podcast. He has appeared on Fox News and Fox Business and has been featured in a number of national print publications. He is the author of Breaking Away, The Case of Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Smaller Polities. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Doug, it's great to be with you. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation, and partly because it's in the milieu in the libertarian world to talk more about secession. And even to some extent, it's getting the attention of even the likes of James Lindsay and some others who are not in favor of it, and yet they're bringing it up and they're calling it a stupid idea. But I don't know, do you want to comment on the phenomenon of this is actually a conversation, at least in theory, about whether or not it's a good idea or can be done? Well, I've been around long enough, so I've been writing articles for these sorts of sites since the early 2000s, so the year 2000, really. So I've got like a 22-year history just kind of in this world. And yeah, I can tell you that nobody was talking about secession 20 years ago. I mean, it just wasn't done. I mean, yes, some people at the Mises Institute back then... <laughs> talked about it in the historical context and right. Tom DiLorenzo has done a whole lot of history about it, but it was always more of a historical idea and nobody really could see any way that the United States would even divide up because these were also in the days of the Iraq war and the South, you know, the place we call the red states were vehemently in favor of the regime. And yeah. thought the American government was wonderful. They loved its torture. They loved its wars. They loved all that stuff. And you weren't allowed to even criticize the president who was like our father in Washington and all of that stuff. And I think people have forgotten how much that was. Also, that's kind of a warning about how any of this <laughs> supposed conservative skepticism of the regime right now could be reversed by historical events at any time, some sort yeah. of 9-11 event or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, thanks to both domestic and international things, the secession talk, the topic, has become much more mainstream. It became mainstreamized first by the Scotland independence vote, where it just became undeniable that, oh yeah, we can talk about secession, and it turns out it doesn't have anything to do with slavery. Also, the Catalan secession, which was less well-known than the Scotland thing, but more educated people knew about it. And they knew that, oh, you could even have left-wingers wanting to secede for their own reasons. And so then after that came the Brexit vote. And while not secession in the way that Americans are mostly talking about, it was certainly secession from a rapidly centralizing political union of sorts. I mean, give it a couple generations and the EU will just basically be like the US. So getting out was difficult. And you can see at how much they had invested in the idea of union by how just crazy in opposition the Europhiles were to Brexit. So this was seen as a big deal. This was seen as like breaking up Europe and the idea of Europe. Yeah, right. All of that. So 
the sort of pushback you get on the idea of breaking up the United States in any way. So once that was out there, then you could start to speak a little bit more in terms of secession. And then there was the California proposed secession. And that was left-wingers then talking about doing that because they hated Trump. When was that? That was shortly after the election of Trump and around okay. that time. So the idea was that America was becoming a fascist state, right-wing fascist state. And so freedom-loving peoples like Californians had to break away. <laughs> and of course, people like me were, yes, please, right? Break off and the left will never win another presidential election. And then the rest of the country will immediately become more free. Just like England would have been much better off politically without Scotland, which is kind of the commie wing of Britain. So that then opened it up even more. And so now you're just to the point where you're starting to get, after COVID, this idea of states being fundamentally different from each other. COVID was great for secession talk because it made people realize that, oh, gee, my state government actually matters a whole lot. Uh, yeah. And they can provide some pushback against the federal government. My state legislature matters. Who I live under as a governor matters. And that suddenly made people starting to think in terms of more local self-governance than this idea of, oh, we're all in it together, we're all united. I mean, that rhetoric that we were handed down in the early days of COVID about how we're all in it together was hilariously ironic in the sense that the whole COVID <laughs> thing just ended up driving the country into a state of division that probably would not have happened otherwise. And so I think with all those events, then the whole secession thing is becoming undeniable in terms of just something that needs to be addressed and talked about. Now, these sorts of things can, of course, take years to warm up yeah. and really come to fruition in terms of actual policy. But they need to start at some point, just like they started years before the American Revolution, right? Breaking away from Britain was madness for a long, long time until that revolution happened. And so there's always that sort of long preparatory period that has to happen. Yeah. I want to get this question out at the beginning. Do you feel like secession is an American or an un-American idea? Well, of course, it all depends on how you define that term. Now, <laughs> politicians like to bring up, oh, well, this is un-American, like in a presidential debate or something like that, where un-American just means something I don't like in that context, right? Now, if the question is, is there an American tradition of secession? Well, then yes, of course, the answer is correct. The United States was formed out of a secession movement. That's what the Declaration of Independence is. Uh, it just explicitly states so that right, you can right. break your political bands with some other political entity if you just decide that they no longer suit your needs. I mean, that's just the heart of the document. So, yeah, Jefferson, secessionist. And then, of course, you can look at a variety of cases. Everybody likes to bring up the Confederacy, but I could point out that it was originally the abolitionists who talked about secession in order to form a slave-free union that they wanted. And then, of course, you had the merchants of New England who talked about secession in the early 19th century because they felt that they had no voice really in the War of 1812, and that was ruining their business. There was, of course, the Mormons who talked about forming their own independent country, Deseret out in the West. And so just lots of talk that's always gone on from the beginning because it was always just assumed that this was a possibility. The only reason that people can even claim now that unilateral secession is illegal is because the Supreme Court said so. But obviously, there was never a constitutional amendment or anything that's ever expressed that. 
My guess, though, is that you're not really interested in whether or not it's actually American. And I I would agree because at the end of the day, it's whether or not it's a moral and ethical possibility. Whether it's American is kind of secondary. Am I right? Yeah, well, I mean, in my scale of values, whatever is American or not is not exactly at the top of the list, right? It's also American to act the states that secede. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's also very American to burn down half the country to ensure political unity. But yeah, after God, family, local community, my parish church, all of that stuff, I guess what's American might be pretty important, but it's certainly not going to override my own personal morals or anything like that, which are certainly higher on the list. Yeah. Well, we'll get to some of the practical things here in a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about your book. You start off with the world has always been decentralized. And I thought that was a little bit of a stark statement until I continue to read a little bit. What do you mean by that, that the world has always been decentralized? It doesn't feel very decentralized to me right now. Well, of course, the proposition that no one should ever secede, that political units should never be broken up, I mean, the reductio ad absurdum of that is always, oh, well, then I guess we need one world government, right? Is that if democracy works at the mega scale of 300 million people, then why not work at the scale of a billion people or two billion people or seven billion people? And what's your argument for why it doesn't work? And so just in terms of an argument, right, the opposite of secession is global one world state. You're either for localized government on some level and local independence and an ability to self-govern with your own institutions independent of the center at some level, or you're in favor of one world government. Now, of course, I'm sure people say, oh, well, I just think that's wrong. And I agree in some decentralization. And that's my point is, yeah, there's always been a significant amount of decentralization at the global level. How many countries are there in the world right now? There's more than 200. By the way, there's almost three times as many countries now as there was in 1945. So secession has been going on left and right since 1945. And then even, of course, in the day of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, China was out doing its own thing. You had the Romans. Not even all of Europe was controlled by the Romans. The Americans are doing all of their own thing. So there's always been global political decentralization. There's never been a one-world ruler. So. That's just the reality. Humanity has somehow managed to muddle through with widespread political decentralization throughout its entire history. Now, of course, some people would argue, well, um, the history of humanity is awful. And if we just forced everyone in one world government, then we wouldn't have conflict anymore. And that's, of course, a terrible argument, but it's an argument I suppose one could make and still be consistent. (laughs) Just on a broadly speaking, what are the benefits of decentralization that you find the most appealing? Well, I mean, just in the way of The normal people, mainstream people think now, everybody thinks in terms of democracy, right? Well, we all express our preferences and views and protect our rights through democracy. But obviously, democracy can't work at all levels, just for the same reason that it would be insane to have a global democracy that included the United States, China, and India, for example, because... (laughs) the Americans would be outvoted all the time on everything, right? There's a recognition that putting a billion Chinese people in the same political union with, say, 100 million Japanese people, gee, who's going to get the short end of that stick? (laughs) And you could say, oh, well, we're all Asians. We can all agree on certain things. And we're stronger when united. And all the usual platitudes that we hear about political unity. But of course, we know the reality 
is that people are different and people have different views and that forcing them then to be in some sort of political unity would be a disaster for minority groups, especially. So that's the reality. And so America, as some sort of vague concept, only works if there's a high level of ideological, ethnic, and basically political idea of unity where, yeah, we all pretty much agree on the same thing. And they enforce this idea that if you think something that's outside the box, that that is simply not permitted. So like what Tom Woods talks about, the three by five card of allowable opinion, that's actually very important if you want to be able to govern a very large country from the center. You need everybody to have a pretty high degree of agreement in terms of what's allowable and what's acceptable. But once you have populations that start to disagree about these sort of things, then it becomes ungovernable because then you'll have some. And the examples I give in the book, right, is, okay, is abortion right or wrong? Oh, well, over here we say it's right, and over there we say it's wrong. Okay, well, what's the compromise then? Because I think abortion is an inalienable right of a woman to get an abortion at all time. And then the other person says, well, I think it's just murder. Okay, great. Well, we're not agreeing on that, so how do you decide that? Oh, well, we all decided that nine lawyers in black robes get to decide whether it's moral or not. Oh, well, Why do they get to decide and why did nine people get to decide for a couple hundred million people what's moral? You can see the absurdity of it. So then you have to be in a position where you're like, well, I'll just accept whatever the elites say and I'll just carry on and just take whatever it is they're willing to dish out. Political history suggests that people are only willing to do that for so long. Eventually, people like self-determination. They don't like other lives and their morality dictated to them by some far off lawyers. That means that the United States, if people are willing to really fight for those beliefs, the United States is ungovernable in its current form. Then decentralization needs to happen because only then, once you've achieved a better level of homogeneity within your political unit, can it actually work. Because if you're just dictating what's right and what's wrong on these deep moral issues, those people cannot stay together peacefully forever or for very long. I think a lot of times we think of the decentralization of power as needed in our society. But one of the ways in which we do that is secession. Are there other ways that are, I mean, secession seems like in some ways, in my mind, a last resort because there's so much effort involved, at least in the United States, right? There's so much more effort involved where it's possible to maybe technologically advance your way out of certain, you know, controls from the government Are there other ways that we could pursue before secession or just other ways that are just equal to secession in terms of decentralization? Yes, there's all sorts of in-between measures, right? And practically speaking, when we're talking about secession, really, that would probably take place in phases, right? When we look historically at what really happens, a place that's unsatisfied with unified rule from the center, they then want to become an autonomous region. Right. So then they gain more autonomy and ability to then govern their own affairs. And then that goes up little bit by little bit. They become more and more autonomous. And then either it reaches a point where they're satisfied with their amount of autonomy within the political union, which happens in many cases where you just stop at that point, or you keep going because you want total autonomy. And that would then be the full blown secession. But even then, there's in between because you could say, Well, okay, well, we want complete autonomy in all domestic matters, but we still want to be in a mutual defense union, or we want to be in a customs 
union. So we, we don't have tariffs on our goods between us. So there are lots of ways that independent republics, independent groups can coexist. And I've written on two great historical examples of this are the Swiss Confederacy and the old Dutch Republic Confederacy. So you had a case where, for the most part, the Dutch republics, who were all members of the unified provinces, this back in this lasted from the 16th to the 18th, the end of the 18th century. They were self-governing. They did their own thing. They had a unified confederacy for purposes of defense, for national defense. And the same was true of the Swiss for that period. I'm talking about the old Swiss confederacy, where they had much, much less unity than the modern Swiss confederacy. So, yeah, those are situations where, okay, you have different religions, you have different values, you have different ways of doing things, maybe even very different types of government. But we all kind of agreed we have this one goal of independence for ourselves. So we'll do this and we'll trade with each other. And then that's fine. But we won't meddle in each other's internal affairs. So there's a good case of a type of radical decentralization that maintains a very small base level of political unity. And definitely we have examples of how that can work. Do you think if we went back to the original Constitution, including the amendments, would that be a, an act of decentralization in your mind? If you include all the amendments, I think we're living with the reality of that now because it's so easy to interpret the 14th Amendment as the federal government gets to do whatever it wants in order to enforce the federal government's ideas of what's politically acceptable. All right. Well, what if we just eliminate all the Supreme <laughs> Court rulings in the past 200 years? What if we just did that and we interpreted it the way... <laughs> You mean before there was even judicial review? Yeah, well, I mean, the original text with the Bill of Rights. Sure. I mean, if people actually took the 10th Amendment seriously and the 9th Amendment, then yeah, I think that's a perfectly workable union. Yeah. You know, I'm asking this for all the people who are like, we just need to get back to the Constitution. Yes, of course. I know. And I hear that all the time. We just need to get back. And here's the thing. Like, I don't think that's the panacea, but like, in your mind, would that be progress? Well, yeah, if we're talking about the original plus the Bill of Rights, obviously that would be a huge, huge improvement. I don't think just going back to the Constitution in some vague way to its current text, oh, well, if people just took it seriously. Uh, I think people okay. take it seriously yeah. now. I think just the text is degenerated to the point where you can interpret it any way you want. So you need to have a sort of text that's less open to just whatever crazy interpretation you want. And I think you got to go back a ways for that. Yeah. Of course, I would prefer something like the Articles of Confederation, which is much more of a consensus model where you can't just do a bunch of stuff that screws over 45% of the states, which is really what the current, even the original 1788 text allows. But mm. that would still be a big improvement. So yeah, sure. Can we all go back to a 1790 text? Fine. Okay. If, that's, <laughs> <laughs> if, if that gets you on board, okay, great. Sure. So in your book, you talk early on about the tension between universal rights and localism. Can you describe a little bit about some of the tensions there? Yeah, this comes from an old saying that Murray Rothbard had, which was universal rights locally enforced. So the issue isn't whether we have natural rights, those rights that are outlined in the Bill of Rights and in many other places, those rights that were, they were talked about, say, in the days of the English Civil War and all of that stuff right to self-defense, right to speech, right to not be tortured, which is what the Fifth Amendment is all about, all of that sort of stuff, right to be secure in your property without the state going through your stuff. These all exist. And so talking about secession and decentralization 
is not a commentary on whether you have rights or not. It's just simply a discussion on what is the best way to secure those rights. Also, there's also not agreement on what the rights are. And until we start to admit that, because there's not agreement on whether abortion is a violation of rights or not. I mean, here's another one that people get really worked up about is circumcision. Talking about something Mm. where there's no compromise, right? You either think it's child abuse or you don't. So you start to look in those sorts of things. Is that a violation of rights or isn't it? So once you get into some of the trickier questions, it's not just this easy thing where, well, we all have rights and we should all take them seriously. And so we should just have one big government that recognizes all those rights. Okay, well, (laughs) I mean, we would need to agree on what those rights are. So that's the problem. And that's why you need a diversity of regimes and for the sake of our more conservative listeners, self, self-governing self units within a broader defense union that can decide for themselves what rights are and what are not. Because otherwise, you're just all in a colonial mindset. Well, we who are in charge decided what the rights are. And you people, these are your universal rights now. And so accept them and live accordingly. Well, sometimes people disagree with that. So the question is, who decides? And that's the whole purpose then of having diverse regimes. Yeah. I think what we get down to is a question of what is the ideal size of a state? Like, how localized do you get? Like, I often will say, in terms of my hierarchy of what do I complain about as a libertarian, I am going to complain less about my local school board decisions than I am about the federal government even though ironically I have more control over what's happening at the federal school board level. But in terms of whether or not people have, you know, voice and the right to exit, my local school district is, you know, it's an issue to move and it's an effort, but I can leave if I want. It's much more difficult to leave the United States. So I often will say the localer, the better. I don't think localer is a word. Well, it is. But I have said that a lot. It is now. I said it. All words are made up. (laughs) (laughs) I quote Marvel movies as much as I can. (laughs) Anyway, what do you think of that? First of all, local or is better, but then also like this does get to the question of like, well, how small is the best option? And maybe we can also speak to the federalism that we live under or supposed to. Well, yeah, I would say most of the time you have more control, right? At the local level, you have an ability to influence the people who have a lot of power over your life. I do, you know, whereas you very sanely see that the federal government has a lot of power over you and impoverishes you and extracts a lot of wealth from you and things like that. There are a lot of people who actually don't even recognize that. They think that the local government is somehow more oppressive to that, even Mm. though the amount of taxes you pay is overwhelmingly federal tax, right? And the regulations you live under are mostly federal regulations. Just think of all this EPA stuff and all. Now, when it comes to housing construction and building codes, yeah, some of that's mostly local. But in terms of the daily impoverishment that you must endure at the hands of federal bureaucrats, it's overwhelmingly federal driven. And part of the reason for that is because they knew that federal power would be largely beyond your reach and more difficult to overturn by ordinary people and easier to impose large taxes. This was Really, a lot of the discussion behind closed doors, behind Social Security back in the FDR days, there was a recognition that the federal government can tax at higher rates 
and get away with more wealth extraction from the mm. community in general than can state and local governments where the officials were more afraid and more prone to being thrown out of office and that sort of thing. So the whole system was designed to federalize it in order to insulate the regime more from local pushback. And you could see why that happened somewhat because it just seems more remote. It's difficult and expensive to really influence your federal officers they're not afraid of you because they live far away in Washington, D.C. They're generally much more wealthy than you. It's public Chances choice theory are, before it was a thing. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's something that they know and which I think a lot of people don't recognize. And if you've ever and I used to work at a state legislature, when you look at just how much more these people are connected to your community versus federal people, it's really quite astounding at the difference. And then it gets even more so at the local school board level. And all of that. So, yeah, just as in terms of political activism and complaining to your local officials and really impressing upon them that they can't just do to you whatever they want, this is helped by defederalizing. And you can just see it how inflexible the federal government is just in terms of social security mm-hmm. policy, federal spending. I mean, there's never any serious talks about cuts to anything. There's no discussion about balancing the budget, which there is at the state and local level all the time because these people recognize there's a limit to their resources. And that sort of thing is flexible and changes a lot where you can't just, it's not just a given that there'll be a huge budget increase every year forever. But at the federal government, largely because of the central bank, which state and federal governments don't have, but also just because of the fact that these large political lobbying groups are basically highly insulated from any sort of change in the status quo allows them to really just keep the party going nonstop. And so it's just, it's really unresponsive, inflexible type of government that occurs at the federal level. My personal view is that that's a bad thing. So if you were to have an elevator ride and you could make your case for secession against somebody you know would be against it, what is your case? Well, just that people have a right to self-determination and they should be able to govern themselves without the interference of elites, wealthy elites from far away. I don't think people just ever think of it in those terms, but it is a type of colonialism. That's all there is to it. And if you think about it, the main reason that we hear from people on the left, at least, that people shouldn't be able to secede is that people in other places will do things differently. And we don't like that. Which is so bizarre because (laughs) all the leftists on Instagram seem to really, really love all the things people do differently in other cultures. Well, that's the thing, too, is, right, (laughs) you're allowed to have a vastly different type of regime and very different culture in other countries where, by the way, things aren't nearly as enlightened as they are in the U.S. in terms of LGBT, Yeah, where requirements for voter ID and who can vote and citizenship requirements much stricter in most other countries. And so where your average American leftist to go to even a Western European country in terms of voting rights and that sort of thing, they would consider that to be just horrible, just illegitimate and Mm, just the sort of thing mm. that must never be allowed. And yet, you know, they don't care at all because that's some foreign country. They're just obsessed with this idea of controlling what Americans do everywhere in every way. And so they can't let a group of Texans, Idahoans, or whoever 
do things their own way because that's just too awful. Oh yeah, all those regimes we speak well of in Africa where they allow female genital circumcision, well, we'll just look the other way on that one. Mm. But God forbid they ask someone for an ID to vote in Idaho. That, now, that's unacceptable. So you, That's a crime against humanity. Yeah, the double standard is just so laughable and stupid. But yeah, they only seem to bother with the colonial idea toward their own fellow Americans. Whereas decolonialization is great in the rest of the world. These people shouldn't be forced to live in a political union with someone who thinks differently from them or looks differently. But apparently in the United States, that's required. So you're saying that the act of not permitting secession is colonialist? Yes, I would absolutely say that. That's an interesting take, and I hadn't even thought about it, because logically you're totally correct. And framing it that way is really helpful in talking to some of the leftists, because right now it really is more about white hegemony and colonization is their kind of shtick right now, because it has to do with, well, it's just the white man's thing, right? It's white supremacy to, to colonize all over the place. So I think that's a really helpful way to frame it and to say, well, if you're against this, then you're basically a colonizer, even though it sort of feels like, well, wait, no, we've already colonized. (laughs) But no, all the people I don't like hundreds of years ago did it. I'm just maintaining it. (laughs) Well, think about it. It's essentially the opposite of state building, right? And the United States spent most of the 19th century state building, expanding westward, seizing lands from other people and turning it into what we're now supposed to believe is the perfect number of states, the perfect size United States, the perfect union. Yeah. And we have the exact number. The borders of the states are drawn perfectly. It has to be locked in. There's nothing more conservative about that, which I want to ask you, if there's a conservative who has the time to refute you in the elevator, what would they say other than, well, I agree with my leftist friends? Because you just kind of told them that they agreed. Steal me on their argument a bit. What is the typical conservative slash Republican response or defense of saying, nah, we really shouldn't pursue this road? Well, you know, I don't know how a young conservative would respond, but I do know how the older crowd always does it. It's always about treason. It's always about America in some vague flag waving. You mean America? America. It's about this mystical union that supposedly unites us all together. They're going to bust out all of the old cliches that they learned in grade school in 1961 about how Lincoln's the greatest president and how we're all one country indivisible. So, I mean, these people don't think in terms of anything except like bumper sticker slogans and like bromides and things like that. And so it's going to be really hard to break through that. It's an emotional, mental block that as long as they're just wedded to the idea of America very, very emotionally like they are, I don't think you can do a whole lot with those people. I mean, I suppose if they're a Trumpist type, you might be able to get through to them because they'll recognize that half the country hates their guts. Yeah. Right. So maybe why do we want to share a government with these people kind of attitude? Well, I have gotten good response on that argument. Yeah. Is if they're social conservatives and if that overrides their quote unquote patriotism, their idea of red blooded American power and unity and all of that stuff. There are also a lot of conservatives who their primary concern is social conservatism and they just want their families to be left alone and they want to live out their lives in accordance with their faith, that sort of thing. Now, those people, when they do look around, they do recognize that people in California, people in New England, people in Washington, D.C., 
they literally hate you if you are like a social conservative. I mean, you look at Obama just trash talking people who are religious or who maybe like to own guns. And you could see just the disdain dripping from the lips of Hillary Clinton anytime that she talked about these middle American people and how, yes, I mean, she says literally, oh, well, your religion says that certain things about abortion are true. Well, you're just going to have to change your religion because that's just old troglodyte type thinking. So Mm. these people, they think your way of life is stupid. They think it's contemptible. They think it's only a matter of time until they can have enough control of governmental institutions to expunge you of this anti-progressive, this horrible way of life that you have embraced. And they're going to keep doing it, and they're going to do it as long as you naively think it's a better idea to stay in the same country with these people. So I think on that issue, social conservatives are open to this idea. The longer that they keep insisting that people in Washington should have power over their daily lives, the more their value system will be slowly disappeared if you will, by the central regime, because that is very much what the people in charge want to do. Yeah, no, that's true. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Bernardo. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, where I explore the relationship between biblical studies, theology, political philosophy, history, and economics. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like what you're hearing on this episode right now. Go ahead and finish this great episode. Then you can go and check out the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, let's talk about some practical considerations. And you deal with a lot of these in your book, which I'll recommend that our listeners go download on Kindle or purchase a paperback copy. It's very affordable. It's quite chock full of all kinds of things about, you know, these practical considerations. But I want to bring up a couple that tend to be pretty common. So what what happens to the nukes and what happens to the national debt? If America were to split up and let's just say for the sake of what we Most of us on this podcast might want California to secede because it's just so out there. Let's say California secedes. All right. Do they get some of the American debt? How does that work? And what about the nukes? They're not going to want any nukes. That's a bad example for California. But anyway, what would happen to the nukes? Maybe they would. Who knows? We will send you all our nukes. (laughs) Well, that's what Ukraine said. Okay. So, yeah, let's talk about the nukes issue. Right? We already have a historical example. I didn't say ship you all of our nukes. I said send you <laughs> oh. all of <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's the opposite of what Ukraine said. Yeah. The <laughs> I didn't pick up on the... Yes. Very good. <laughs> so the issue here has already been addressed historically. Right? And nuclear war did not result where the Soviet Union breaks up. There were thousands of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Belarus. I think those are the only ones. And they all said, well, we'll give you our nukes. Now, the Soviet Union, which was still calling itself the Soviet Union at this point, was in no position to force them to give back their nukes. So the two weak did not anywhere near have the military capability of doing so. But because the world was in the thrall of this idea of a deproliferation. And whereas the United States said, no, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Just rely on the West. The West will protect you. And by the way, there was never any sort of formal treaty or anything like that. So the U.S. is not, there's no treaty saying the United States needs to protect Ukraine under the current situation. But 
Ukraine said, oh, yeah, we'll give our nukes. We will return them all to the Soviet Union. Now, some people, including the now villainized John Mearsheimer, who has apparently who is accused of being pro-Russian, said, Ukraine, do not give up your nukes. This is insane because you're right next to Russia and having nuclear arsenals, the only way to ensure that they don't invade you. And they said, no, don't worry about it. So uh, Mearsheimer correct once again, because if Ukraine had kept its nukes, probably the world would have continued as being a world where no country with a nuclear arsenal has ever been invaded. So they gave that up. All the other countries in Belarus, Kazakhstan did also. And so here we are now. The, <laughs> the Soviets invaded Ukraine. They gave up their nukes. Now, in terms of the details, well, what if they wanted to keep them? Well, you had an interesting situation in Ukraine where the Soviets had the launch codes, and so Ukraine couldn't actually launch those nukes. But by the time Ukraine was giving up their nukes, they had already gone down the road of they took over the software. They were writing their own software to give themselves their own launch codes. So they were going to take that over. That was inevitable. The other issue, too, is that while the Soviets had the launch codes, they didn't have the ability to launch the nukes. Why? Because even though Ukraine didn't have the launch codes, Ukraine had physical control over the missile silos. So mm. these missile silos were inside Ukraine. The Soviets stopped paying the Soviet soldiers who were working there. So they all went home. And then the Ukrainians put their own people in there. So now these were all military installations controlled by Ukraine, whether the nukes worked or not. So now all the nukes were out of the hands of the Soviets. So I mean, that's just how it works. Once you have a weakened central state that doesn't have the ability to put up a fight, either because they've declined in legitimacy or just the political situation doesn't allow them to maintain the union anymore. And that's what happens when, when successful secessions happen. It's just a political reality where the secessionists have taken advantage of a situation where the central state no longer has the ability to do it for any number of reasons, not just military. Then you just take control of the physical location of the nuclear weapons and then you can control them. Now, that's just one third of the nuclear triad. You also had nukes on trucks. And then you had nukes in submarines. And so those could still be moved around. And then it presents no particular inexplicable problem of where are the nukes, especially in terms of the submarine nukes, because then they just went back to port in Russia, where Russia still had its permanent ports. So, OK, fine. That was that. Now, was anybody willing to start a nuclear war? Over it? No. And in, by the way, it should be noted, as we're seeing today, the political differences and the ethnic animosity was far higher between the Ukrainians and the Russians than anything that we see in the United States today. I know we talk about how much we hate each other in certain places, but the, the long history of ethnic infighting in Eastern Europe is way worse than anything in North America right yeah, now. Yeah, right, right. So if they could avoid nuclear war, pretty sure that North America could do it too. All right, what about the debt? So the debt, we have precedents for that too. Now, some of the precedents are more old, we could look at, say, Gran Colombia and especially some of the countries that broke off from Spain in the 19th century. And they had huge debts. And in that case, they were either divided up or just simply retired. And a bunch of legal, you know, legal negotiations took place. So the debt was written down and it wasn't a big mystery as to how that would be dealt with. This happens all the time as regimes just either they go bankrupt, they say they can't pay the debt, they then pay pennies on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar, or whatever their currency is in terms of the debt. And so we certainly know what happens when regimes fail. 
and they're dead. And so that happens somewhat frequently in terms of the big scheme of things. But then in terms of orderly discharge of the dead, we have, of course, Czechoslovakia, right, where they split up into two countries. They came to an agreement about what to do with the debt and they split it up and they paid some of it. They adopted some of it. And that was that. It wasn't this impossible nut to crack. It's just a matter of renegotiating. So that's much easier, I think, than some of the other problems, actually, because it's just a matter of simply deciding, well, how much are we going to pay per dollar on the debt? And I think it's unavoidable that you would probably see a significant rise in interest rates because people would be afraid of political instability then, well before the separation even takes place. If memory serves, I think interest rates went up for Canada, even when they were talking about Quebecois secession, because instability raises interest rates and it decreases the ability to issue debt for that government. Mm, But it doesn't make it impossible. And it doesn't, when we know it's not impossible to come up with negotiated settlements in terms of debt. So it's all been done and it can be done again. It's really only an argument over, oh, well, the United States is such a huge economy and so on. Well, then I guess that <laughs> that would require more intense negotiations. But the fact of the matter is, is that the debt in Czechoslovakia, yeah, that was a small country. And so their debt was small. But the United States economy is a huge economy. Hmm. Even if it were to split up, if you had any sort of well-established trade relations at all, it would continue to be an incredibly huge part of the world economy yeah. and with huge output. So this idea that then the ability to pay payments on the debt would be impossible. There's just no argument there. All right. Well, I will leave it to the listeners to go buy your book to get all the goodness that is in that book, including some of these practical considerations. Since you so thoroughly <laughs> dealt with the nuke situation, I don't have any time for any more of the more of the practical. So I'll have them go download your book. But I have one final question, and that is: Do you see the role of digital? And, you know, maybe even the blockchain and our ability to increasingly be online as a way of seceding from geopolitical governance. Yeah, I think that helps. I think that if you can get to the point where Bitcoin or whatever money has this sort of liquidity that is necessary to really carry on, then that would really kind of render it irrelevant in terms of do we have borders between this district and that in terms of clearing out trade What's our price, right? What's the price we would negotiate? You don't need to buy the other country's currency then to buy their goods and all of that sort of stuff. But of course, even when that's the case, we have lots of small countries that deal with that all the time and have very, very high standards of living. But sure, I think it also it decreases the odds of real conflict. So you could see the benefits of political decentralization while also maintaining the source of cultural ties you want to maintain because people can communicate so easily across national borders and negotiate trade agreements. Mm. Entrepreneurs can communicate with each other much more easily. I think that actually is just an argument for more decentralization because there are so many more avenues of making these sorts of contracts and agreements that you need to make across borders compared to what was the case once long ago. So companies are much less constrained now in terms of what national borders are if only their states would let them engage in more trade and more freely, which they generally don't because we're still on this old model of trade and tariffs and non-tariff barriers and all of that. But there's, yeah. we certainly have the technology to move far beyond that sort of localist parochial thinking in terms of trade and cultural exchange. Yeah. 
Well, Ryan, I appreciate this conversation. I love your approach to talking about this, which is a little different from, ah, we need to secede. This just isn't working for me, which is typically what you hear. Maybe that's just how people rant online or how I'm, how my friends are. Maybe I need to unfriend some people. But anyway, uh, your approach to this is definitely reasoned. I mean, that was a short elevator ride when I asked you to say, what's your elevator pitch for this? It wasn't very long. It was very compelling to me. Now, obviously I'm somewhat already in line here, but I appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Where can people buy your book? They can certainly buy it at Amazon or at our store at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. Excellent. Well, Ryan, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.